This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Our guest today is Alfredo Gutierrez, a name that will be known to probably all the old timers in the state. None of the new residents. Uh, that's uh, that's about right. <laughs> no one under twenty five or even fifty. It was it was like I, I saw a, a joke posting on on one of the social medias. It was talking about this Spotify uh, thing, and it said, "Well, if you're." Let me see if I can remember this because I didn't plan to say this. But if, if you're under thirty five, you, you ask uh, who is. Um, Neil Young, if you uh, are 35 to 65, it's, is Neil Young still alive? And if you're over 65, they say, what's Spotify? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like that. Anyway, for those who need an introduction, uh, he is an activist. He's a uh, retired uh, reformed politician. Was I th- was Democratic majority leader of the Senate? I think the very last Democratic majority leader. Am I correct on that? Uh, no, there was one, a subsequent, uh, a subsequent one for two years. Who was but, that? Uh, I'm trying to think of it. The, yeah. the 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 president of the Senate was Pete Rios of uh, uh, of. Pinal County, but I can't recall who the majority leader was. And we, <laughs> obviously not memorable, not as memorable as you were. Uh, when were you majority leader? Was it in? Uh, I was. I was actually the Democratic leader between yeah, 1973 was, and 1986. But I only was majority, majority leader, leader for, for four years, 72, 76. Okay, and uh, then uh, you became a consultant, uh, an activist, uh, radio host for a while, and right. uh, I think I got the big picture anyway. That's right. Um, I want to. I want to talk. I, you know, I, I've heard you talk about politics and whatever, but. Uh, uh, I never really delved into your background. If you don't mind, I'd like to. Do, you sure. grew up in you grew up in Miami, Miami, Arizona, Miami, Arizona. Uh, born in forty six, so you grew up in the, basically in the fifties. I, I was born in forty five. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I was. I was. I was brought up there in mm-hmm. in, in Miami. The family went back to Mexico and then came back and went back on two occasions, but primarily I was. Uh, my memories are. Miami, Arizona, and uh, and uh, uh, very very rural rancheria in uh, Sinaloa, Mexico. That's that's my childhood. Oh, so there's family in Sinaloa as well. <clears throat> I think they're in Los Angeles, San Antonio, and uh, Tucson now. But yes, uh-huh. that's or where was. we. Yeah. That's where it was. That's that's a cartel area these days. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So tell me about growing up in Miami. What was it like for you? Well, it was you know it, it it's it's uh, Miami uh, appears to be almost a ghost town these days. It's uh, it's uh, just shrunk in population. Well, it was Phelps Scotch, right? Every the solo industry was, was well. There were three mines. There were three separate mines at the mm-hmm. time. Inspiration Consolidated, Miami Copper, Tenacore, uh, and and uh, it. it it was teeming at the time. The population was probably about ten thousand. It was uh, the downtown was uh, uh, bars, uh, mm-hmm. lots of bars, uh, and in between uh, a lot of churches. And between that, there were a few stores. But primarily, you, you, your recollection will be bars and uh, and churches of uh, that downtown. 
it was a, in retrospect, a very typical mining town. It was mm. uh, it was macho, uh, very male oriented, very male dominated. You're a kid. It was uh, all about being tough, being being mm. tough in a mining town, expecting to be. Uh, an adult, and when you were expected to be, you were going underground or you were going somewhere in this mine, mm-hmm. uh, that was your, uh, your future. That was what you were relegated to. The union, and this is the mine mill, which is at the time being accused of being a communist union, uh, the union was the, was the major factor for change. Uh, the mine mill was not a union in the a traditional sense, that is, that it worried about employment and working conditions and salaries. Mine Mill worried about all of that, but it also worried about the community in a larger sense. And it uh, it was in a constant battle to integrate uh, the schools, constant battle to integrate the community. The, the mine the, or the union was pro-integration. That's right. That's right. And that was the next thing I was going to say. That I, I know in the 50s, Phoenix was not integrated. Miami right. was not either. It was not either. It, it mm-hmm. uh, came about in 55 mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that integration took place. Was that in response to the court decision of 54? It, it was. It was also in response to the constant union uh, uh, demand mm-hmm. uh, that those changes take place, changes in the city council, etc. Uh, it, it was in response to that. I, I should note that it was, uh, it was controversial. In this sense, that was that is unexpected these days. My mother, for example, was very active opposing integration. Uh, she thought that integrating with white people was uh, very dangerous. Uh, she referred to uh, white people as gringos patasaladas. Now, you know what gringo means. Yeah, yeah. salada means... Salty leg, and it is a it is a way of saying that they were dirty. They didn't shower. They were clean, wow. or they were unclean. And my mother was convinced that white people were just simply unclean people, and she didn't want her children around them. But she wasn't alone. There was huh. this, this battle, but ultimately integration went out, and uh, uh, and, and things went surprisingly easy after that uh, in in the schools. I mean, it it wasn't confrontational as, as it was in the South, for example. Maybe easier, uh, maybe easier in small towns. Than I in think the city. I, I think that's uh, that that was the case. I think that mm-hmm. because people were forced to be together mm-hmm. in in every other instance, including working at the mine. Mm-hmm. The mine, the workforces at the mine were not segregated except for foremen and, and, and managers, mm-hmm. but laborers were, were uh, uh, thrust together. And uh, this is Miami, next to the, the, the Apache reservations. And so you had Native Americans, Mexicans, and uh, in, in Anglos primarily in, in the mines. You know, th- that gave me a thought. That <clears throat> I think the most successful instance of integration in the world that I can think of is in Singapore. Four major ethnic groups, 85% of the housing is public housing. It's owned by the government. And the government mandated that when they put up public housing, which doesn't have the connotation when 85% of the public, right. almost exactly. everybody's in it, every fourth house would go to 
a member of a different and it was like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So you not only went to school together, your kids played together. You were <laughs> it, it. It was everything became very personal. And I'm I'm not saying they've never had any problems, but uh, uh, and of course it, it took. Uh, uh, it was a, really a, a benign authoritarian government to pull it off. With you know the 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 the, the army. My experience at the army was uh, was in a, in a sense very similar to that. I contextualize for me. What years were you in the army? I was in in uh, in sixty three sixty seven. Okay, so it's um, early mid civil rights era. That's right. That's right. It 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 uh, it corresponded with that mm-hmm. almost exactly. But the the, the issue is this. There was a lot of us. And that, was, that wasn't unique to this. We got to the Army. This is the first time I had been around African Americans. I'd mm-hmm. been around black people. There were, there were exceedingly few in my memory in Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first time we were thrust together, and you're thrust together in training, thrust together you know, in, 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 uh, in, in Korea, in Vietnam. Uh, and you discover... And, it, it, and we didn't arrive there with perhaps the southern prejudices. We came from mm-hmm. a mining town uh, and didn't, you know, really have a, a context for African Americans. But it was uh, it, it was an amazing learning experience uh, and uh, and a wonderful one. We'll pick up that thought when we return in just a moment with Alfredo Gutierrez. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're talking to Alfredo Gutierrez, uh, Life and Times of. Uh, uh, I did some some uh, quick arithmetic in my head. Uh, you said if you're born in 45, entered the military in 64, that probably is right after you probably straight out of high school. That's right. That's right. Straight out of high school. And uh, about the time that Vietnam was... was well, it was in place. I mean, it was mm-hmm. taking place. But yeah, uh, sixty five was escalation period. That's right. It hadn't. You know, you you, you didn't have Westmoreland and uh, and uh, and that set of the military who was convinced that you just simply had to send more troops and kill more people, mm-hmm. and you were going to win a war. Mm-hmm. Um, they forgot one thing. It was their country. It was their country. <laughs> they really, it, was, it was pretty amazing. I always wanted to ask these guys, okay, listen, look at it this way. We get invaded by Russian. There's Russian troops down central, running down Central Avenue. How long before you give up? You know, ask that question of the super patriot. And they said, well, we'd fight to the last breath. Duh. You know, the, the, um, the other amazing thought, and a lot of folks who were in Nam, uh, and in Korea, but in Nam particularly, talk about this, and that is why we lost the war. And, and people attribute all kinds of things. You know, there's been Seymour Hersh's books. Sure. There's a lot of books. Sure. But I think most folks who were there were attributed to one thing, marijuana. Uh, it was everywhere. <laughs> it grew wild. It was everywhere. There were kids in the streets selling it. And uh, and I think at any given time, the majority of, uh, of, of our folks there were loaded that included the, the the officers. I mean, people were on dope the entire time they were there. And it created a very laconic situation. I mean, you went out, you know, it was, a, uh, it, it was something worth 
considering, and it's, I'm amazed by all the scholarly work that has been done. That has uh, not that, gone That there. it has not got <laughs> that focus of attention. Uh, well, you know, the sociologists call, call that, which I've done, that's field work, going there and right. participant <laughs> observation. There is something to be said for that. And I say, as somebody who's done survey research, yeah. my, you, that gives you one level of understanding. But but it, it's good to start from a qualitative depth understanding of something, and then you only use surveys on the back end to quantify. Well, how much is how much is this? And you, you, perceptions of quantity can be off, but you usually get. But if you're immersed in something, you have a different level of understanding. Right. That's true. So that's true. Um, why the mill? Was that just something that was done a lot? I think it, that's that's true of Latinos at that time mm-hmm. in general. Yeah, Mexican in Miami, America. I'm thinking, you know, in, in Miami specifically, mm-hmm. but I think in general, Mexican Americans mm-hmm. looked at that as as is a sort of a natural step. Uh, in my case, there had been my specific case had been I'd, I'd gotten into great difficulties with the police with. Uh, uh, and was given given a choice. Oh, uh, okay. okay. And uh, uh, and and so I chose the military. Mm-hmm. Ended up in the army because I went in to to, to join the Marines, but the recruiter was gone for lunch, mm-hmm. and the army guy was there. So I, <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> let's do this. But yeah, it, it was uh, it was a a I think a natural path. And also, it sounds like I've, I've heard this story. Well, the, the military will straight, quote unquote, straighten you out. That's right. I mean, there was a lot to that. And I'll be very honest with you the military, uh, I didn't like the army. I didn't like military life. I didn't like regimentation, but it was very good for me. I, mm-hmm. I, I met a lot of people. I, culturally, it was, it was mm-hmm. mind blowing. Uh, Asia was mind blowing. I mentioned uh, I mentioned many many friendships I made with African Americans I'd mm-hmm. never met before. Uh, Filipino Americans I'd never met a Filipino American mm-hmm. before, and all of this was uh, it's just sort of explosive. The other part of it was I was drafted at the time, or rather I volunteered at the time the draft was in place, and so, so the military is more diverse. It was because very diverse, especially in uh, in. Uh, uh, in basic training in advanced infantry, mm-hmm. when uh, when it was populated with a lot of folks who'd gone to various universities, including in 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 my case in uh, uh, in advanced infantry, there was a guy from Harvard, and there was a guy from <laughs> from Columbia, and other and. What it led to in my case is is this understanding. I've joked about this before, but I I think it's true. Some of these guys, you know, you're in advanced infantry. You're 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 trying to go to war. You're yeah, we used to joke. They didn't have the 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 damn sense to to you know to get down when somebody was shooting at you. The damn sense to throw a, throw a grenade. They'd open up a grenade and then they'd freeze and they wouldn't throw it. They didn't have the sense to get out of a creek when it was raining. And I learned very quickly, you know, just the fact that someone had gone to a university, even a prestigious one, mm-hmm. didn't make them very smart. Uh, and I, it gave me such extraordinary confidence mm-hmm. in my own intelligence and my own ability to analyze, my own ability to uh, to think through complex problems mm-hmm. as compared to folks uh, who who were highly educated 
And I'm not, I'm not demeaning them. I'm simply saying that I didn't have that confidence before I was mm-hmm. thrust with all of these folks. So it was, uh, the military was a great experience for me. Yeah, that, that, that's, that makes a great deal of sense. You, you uh, cut on the edge. You know, you, you, I, I've quoted you for years a, a statement that I only found out years later that you stole from H.L. Mencken, but you modified it. And you actually said it better than he he oh, did I, about I, a, about <laughs> a, about to every to every simple to every complex problem. There's a simple answer. Yeah, it's simple wrong. and wrong <laughs> and wrong and wrong. And I, I remember you reworded it, and then I saw the original quote, and I said, "I like yours better." <laughs> so. Uh, after the military, we and we got just a, a minute or so here, and then we'll split this. It, you're 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 back here. Is that when you you go straight from the military kind no, of I, issue? I, I go what? straight to the mine, uh, as uh-huh. I was expected to do. But uh-huh. the, that's the year of the long strike, uh, and I had the least seniority so you're uh, out. in uh-huh. Uh-huh. in in the union. So I got I don't know four dollars a month or some ridiculous amount. I had to find a way to survive. And uh, the GI Bill was available. So my scheme was to come down here, uh, enter ASU, get the GI Bill, and then as soon as the mine opened up, leave the university. Um, But, you know, once there, (laughs) I I said it before, your mind blows up. You begin to get challenged and you begin to learn. Somebody hands you a book and you say, wow, and... And it was just an expansive uh, experience. Wow. So the short I answer never... is you came to the university because the mine was on strike. That's right. Might not have done that otherwise. That's right. And because the GI Bill would have provided me with what at that time was a lot of – it was $400 a month. That was enough at that time to run an apartment and live. We'll pick up the discussion with Alfredo Gutierrez after the break. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we're back with Alfredo Gutierrez. Uh, following a most interesting life, you're, you're young 20s, you're at ASU. That's right. Uh, I recall at some point you got your ass thrown out of there. Am I right? That's absolutely <laughs> That's absolutely right. That, that was I, one of the first things I heard about you, and I knew at that point I'd love you. It was the 60s, <laughs> and uh, we— we organized, uh, and uh, it was a uh, following, I think, a pattern of the time. We took over the university president's office and the administration building and did so for a number of days. We finally reached an agreement with uh, the university, but the Board of Regents at the time uh, demanded somebody's head, and I was the most obvious head. I had been the public figure. Mm-hmm. I had been the spokesperson. But the the, uh, the the code of conduct did not allow for simply throwing me out. So they had to change the code of conduct uh, in order to allow that possibility. And in the meantime, uh, you know, dragged me to one hearing after the other. I, I like to say that they they forced me out rather than threw me out. <laughs> By by just simply manipulating, mon- mm. monopolizing almost all of my time uh, in one one hearing after another about what I had done and hadn't done. Did you ever interpret that honorary <clears throat> doctorate you got from ASU as an apology? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, of, of course. It came about, uh, I don't know, many years later, mm-hmm. decades later. Um, where, where, it, the, where all the folks who were, were involved in it were long gone. <laughs> and, and, and Exactly. But, but consider this. When I went to the legislature uh, and, and became majority leader, and Burton Barr was the majority leader of the House, and we had formed a partnership that lasted for, well, for the rest of our lives, we were very close friends. Are you Intriguingly, I, I saw a video where you described him as a mentor. Absolutely. absolutely. The mind-blowing part of that in terms of current politics is you were a prominent Democrat. He was the Republican leader. I was a Democratic leader. He was the Republican leader. And yet he's a mentor. Absolutely. He was he was a genius. He was brilliant. But one of the things we recognized very early on, primarily because of the president of the U of A at the time, is that ASU was not even a research one institution. It did not have uh, the kind of resources that it needed to be a great university. And so and something I, I must say, just my observation, folks at the legislature never many never really understood that no they didn't that no they about. didn't it became a battle of Bert and I to to move literally millions of dollars into uh, uh first the school of engineering we were assisted in that by the by the president of Motorola Motorola was a major player in this community then he was intrigued with the idea of creating an engineering school at ASU that would be at a at a competitive national level. But to do so, we needed to, to finance it with literally $100 million to begin with. And so that, was, that had to be done over a number of years. So all of that came about, but that came about with agreements to create the, the Cancer Center at the University of Arizona in order to get the votes. Uh, and, and in order to get the votes to take that sleepy little school up north, uh, Northern Arizona University, which was a tiny little school at the time, about the size of a community college today, uh, and uh, and begin to invest in it and make it a major institution. And so by the time that we finished that process and ASU was what it is today, I think it was it was easier to recognize me for those efforts uh, and to camouflage, to the, 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 try and hide what they'd done to me years ago with, with a recognition of, of those steps. Well, well you weren't alone. Um, you want to tell our listeners who was Morris Starsky? Well, Morris was, a, was a, <laughs> that, <laughs> another mentor. I, I enjoyed... Uh, um, I, I, he was one intriguing character. He was a professor of philosophy, a professor of philosophy, a, a, he should have been a professor of sociology and, and, uh, and politics as well uh, because he had a, a, a tremendous understanding of, of, of human nature in, 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 in community, in, in community. I... Uh, think of him when I recall him. I, I recall reading Joan Didion many, many years later, and I'm sure you've read Joan Didion, um, slouching towards Bethlehem, named after, of course, the, the, the eighth poem, uh, that, that he also had that ability to see through the veil and, and understand what was going on. 
But he was uh, he was a socialist, uh, an avowed one, uh, mm-hmm. openly uh, openly espousing socialism in uh, 1960s Arizona, um, which of course the, the the Board of Regents at the time, uh, very wealthy, ignorant people, uh, couldn't stand the idea that there was this guy, and and, and Morse was not. Shy. He was in the public eye. He was speaking to the press. He was challenging, <laughs> challenging state government, challenging the regents, and so they got rid of him. I mean, there was, and there was a sham argument. He, the, ostensibly, it was for canceling a class. That's uh, and, yeah. At which a he had permission for, and b I can tell you as. Uh, Somebody who was a faculty member there a few years later, I knew faculty members who canceled every, classes every week to go play golf. Some of, at least one case became a dean subsequent to that. So it was it was a it was a total shame. It was an anti racism rally went to in Tucson, and it was it was bogus. And the university ended up on uh, AAUP probation for about ten years over that, and uh, and they destroyed his life. They destroyed his life. They made it impossible for him to to go to another university. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, uh, it, it was it, it was a sad outcome of uh, otherwise an extraordinary human being. He was he was quite a guy. I enjoyed him very very much and learned learned, and he was provocative. He mm-hmm. he, he forced you to think. Uh, he forced you to, to reconsider. Uh, assumptions that you'd carried since childhood, uh, simply because you were told it was so. Mm-hmm. And he those forced, are the hardest ones. They, they <laughs> are. <laughs> he forced you to yeah. think, and it was uh, he was a brilliant guy. I want to move on. You knew Caesar Chavez, and and I I want to. One of the interesting things he was no fan of immigration. Well, he he. Uh, Let's. There's there's an arc there of uh, uh, with Caesar. There's a there's a clear arc. He was a major advocate for the rights of immigrants, uh, documented and undocumented. After he'd won the uh, the battles in, in California, the growers uh, began a, a really a outward open program of trying to recruit undocumented workers so that the union would be diminished in its influence and power. He then became famously uh, and unfortunately and tragically uh, uh, anti-immigration. It was a status that he maintained for a number of years but uh, he couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep it morally. But in addition to that, his allies outside of Latino allies, Mexican American allies, including myself, outside of um, the union itself, begin to challenge him and begin to say, "We're not going to go forward with you unless you change this policy." And I get that as a labor leader. He sees the growers trying to change That's the right. economic calculus by flooding new workers, therefore making them compete with one another. And, and I, I guess I also say this as somebody who's white and highly educated. 
I, I recognize that I can be very pro-immigration without any risk of any personal threat to my own economic well-being. That nobody that's in the immigration pool is any threat to take my job. And not necessarily so if you're yourself a first wave immigrant or first generation absolutely um, it was it was it was tough i mean it it was and it was a tough competitive situation mm-hmm. for a job that paid so very little and it was uh uh creating the necessary conditions to reduce salaries to reduce pay i say salaries there are no salaries but mm-hmm. to reduce Wages, pay yeah, yeah. And so it, it was. Uh, it was. It was. It was a tough battle, and it, it was a. It, it was a time that the, the choice was made of whether to then recruit those undocumented workers to the union, or simply try and exclude them to protect the the few labor contracts that were in place. Most of us thought it was the wrong decision, but. Uh, he was Caesar, and we weren't. And Caesar was, <laughs> was an extraordinary human being, and even your greatest uh, idols have clay feet, and ah. uh, those were his. We'll be back, concluding segment with Alfredo Gutierrez in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Alfredo Gutierrez talking about his life and politics. Uh, We hit on the edge of something a minute ago. We talked about immigration. I mentioned how, you know, for many Hispanics, immigration is a two-edged sword, that if you're in a uh, working-class job, you could be threatened by more immigrants coming in, competing for wages. And I have... uh, I, I want to couple that with a kind of a cultural conservatism that is often the case in in Hispanic community. And, and but the, but I want to fill that in as possible answers to the question that I want to ask you. Donald Trump got a third of the Hispanic vote, right. and that number went up slightly in twenty twenty compared to twenty sixteen. Are those the explanations, or if not, what? Well, I think it's important first to divide away um, the the Cuban American community and, to some degree, the uh, the, the the Venezuelan American community, because mm-hmm. it's. It, I say to some degree because it is demographically a very small. Yeah, I was going to say Cubans are, are lean Republican, but it's a tiny percentage of Hispanics. They're not driving so, that number. So what's driving that number, of course, is Mexicans and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Mexican-Americans. If you look at those numbers that you just talked about, Texas is a, is, a, is, a, is a major player in that. So what's driving that? I think it is, uh, it is cultural conservatism, but I had mentioned the evangelical church in a, a moment ago. Uh, the evangelical church has become political. It is a it is a political institution that it was not fifteen or twenty years ago when my mother was 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 very involved with with Protestantism with that with that uh, fundamentalist. It is today, but that is also true of Latinos who are evangelical. They are part of that larger sort of political ambiance. That is that is driving driving to the right, uh, and in in addition to that, you have uh, 
think the the areas that have become problematic for older Latinos, LGBT rights, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it's a older cultural, communities, cultural exactly. Yeah. They're, 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 they're torn with this. Even though Mexico City, for example, has recognized uh, 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 gay rights. Well, and, and just aside, I've noticed this. I go to Panasco all the time, and uh, I notice an acceptance there of gays. I said, well, where's the old sort of Mexico match? It, it seemed to me in at least the little slices of Mexico that I've seen to be a non-issue. Oh, it's a very divisive issue. Mm-hmm. But, but it <clears throat> maybe it's, it's no age. longer maybe it's, it's age. It's no longer hidden mm-hmm. away. Yeah. I mean, now it is a public major issue there mm-hmm. as, <clears throat> as it is as it is here. But it's it's that fundamental conservatism uh in addition to that, I think there was something uh, a lot of Mexicans don't want to talk about. Let me share it with you. Machismo. Mm-hmm. Trump was a tough guy. He yeah, liked okay. to play okay. the tough guy. Yeah, he's yeah. tough. He's going to beat you up. He's going to he's going to and, and a traditional Mexican male uh, culture. He, he, he mirrors that, mirrors that, you know, I am a man, we are machos, we... And he played into that. And so you'd run into these young people, young guys, who had no damn idea about his politics and mm-hmm. didn't care. What they cared about was that uh, he swaggered just like they wanted to swagger, that he was a tough guy just like they wanted to be. So all of those factors, I think, uh, uh, play into this. Uh, but I tell you that the, the other factor that plays into this that has to be uh, uh, part of it is the notion that my parents got here and they worked hard to be here. Why should somebody else just walk in and become mm-hmm. a citizen? Of course, it's an ignorant notion because, yeah. Even when I was a kid, people walking back and forth across the border openly. They're, they're, they're. So it was. It's it's a it's a it's an ignorant, uneducated notion. But none the fact, n- nonetheless, I mean, you will hear it very often. Yeah, my parents came here and they had papers. Well, the truth maybe is they, they didn't. <laughs> the truth is they probably didn't have papers, but nobody cared. Mm-hmm. They came up here. They got a job at the mine, for example, and they said, "Go get a social security card," and they did, and they gave them one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there you are. All of a sudden, they were uh, they were citizens. It might not have been their social security card. No, in those days it was. It was. I mean, they, they got they got they a got legitimate the, one. Yeah. Well, my brother, my, my brother was born in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my brother, he left, was born in Mexico, uh, and uh, yeah, he came here. He was probably 14 when he came here, 13, 14, mm-hmm. that, when, when, when he was mm-hmm. that age when we came across. <clears throat> he got a Social Security card and uh, went to work at the mine. And then the war, Korean War, he went off to war. Uh, he's been in America. His children are American citizens, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But he never went through that process. I mean, that's true of many, many generations but nonetheless, this belief that uh, uh, that my parents, my grandparents uh-huh. came across 
And the myth. I love papers. the myth. We they did it the, the right myth. way. Yeah. 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 We did it the right way. And uh, they shouldn't be here working. We should be having that job. There's Does nobody ho- who really wants that job. You yeah. do understand <laughs> that. Nobody really wants to go to Yuma to work <laughs> picking artichokes today. Mm. Nobody really wants to do that. So it's it's all a you know a, it's sort of a, a, the mythical nonsense that uh, that uh, surrounds the issue of immigration. So uh, <clears throat> you know, have you are you familiar with the Massey study? Massey's a Princeton professor did a massive study of immigration. Right. You, you know the study. Right, right. Uh, shorthand version is that from 19, his time period was 1986 to 2008, which was, I think, available data Good. at the time he wrote about this. We are spending 20x, 20 times what we did on the border. And the net best estimate that he could come up with as a result of that is that we have 30% more immigration as a result of the additional enforcement and the the reason is that workers would come up here in the in the era you describe come up here work seasonally send money home go home for the winter and circle back because it was because the border was open when the border starts to tighten they say if i get across maybe i shouldn't go back and then i should either marry here or should I bring my family here and well, you're not going to go back to Mexico if you can't get back here for the job the next year. So you stay. So the net effect of that, he estimate, is 30 percent more immigration than we would have had if the border was more or less open the way it was before '86. Indeed, I mean, it it, I, I think that to those <laughs> brought up here, that's that's that's. That's an obvious reality. But not, it's it, not obvious in political discourse. No, it isn't. But right. remember, the, you, we used to talk about uh, the, the, the migrant uh, stream mm-hmm. came from Mexico and it moved uh, north all the way to Minnesota to pick mm-hmm. cherries or whatever they mm-hmm. pick up there and then come back down and go out. Where the jobs are. <clears throat> Where the jobs are. That's gone now. The workers are now permanent because you can't go back and forth any mm-hmm. longer. <clears throat> The Bracero program, the Bracero which program, a temp- which was a temporary worker program, it lasted a very long yeah. time. But yes, yeah. it was a temporary worker program. Uh, it allowed workers to come here uh, seasonally, and they came seasonally, worked mostly in uh, uh, in agriculture, and at the end of the work, they went back to Mexico. You stopped the Bracero program. At one point, four million people participated in the uh, in the Bracero program, so there were hundreds of thousands, if not over a million pe- Braceros in the United States at the time that you that that the program expires. That it's not, they stayed. <laughs> they stayed. I mean, they couldn't go yeah. back. Yeah. They stayed. So. Those uh, those those attribute the numbers. We got uh, less than a minute to go, but I, just quick question. We are in a situation right now of documented worker shortages. Do you think this changes the conversation? That thing about taking somebody's job in the current environment, that, that's a pretty weak argument. Does that change the, 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 the uh, politics of this at this point? It should. It hasn't yet, but it should. I mean, farmers are, 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 are adamant that it should. The, the travel industry is adamant that it should. <laughs> Uh, but it it hasn't yet. I mean, you're still mm. you're still fighting this thing uh, 
in, in, in terms that were relevant and discovered somewhere in the 70s. It will soon, I hope. Thank you so much. I, Thank you. I hope this this was fascinating. I hardly scratched the surface on the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about because uh, the biography was so fascinating. I hope you'll come back soon. I'll be happy to. I assume we were going to talk politics. We were. <laughs> well, we did in a, in a roundabout in a, in a historical kind of way. way. Alfredo Gutierrez, uh, you can reach me at mikeoneal.org for uh, contact through social media, whatever. Um, see you next week in the Think Tank.